Remember all of that talk about dinosaur investments and stranded assets and big natural gas fields would be stranded assets. And so now we face this position where we recognize our dependence upon some of these fossil fuels. How do you manage the energy transition when we're in the middle of an energy crisis? The industry and the world is in the midst of a reality check of how we move forward from here. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the National in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. If you like this show, please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio content. Kelsey Warner, co-host and the National's Feature Editor. Hello. Hey, Mustafa. At the very top of the show, that was Alexis Crow, a senior non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council and also the uh, lead for geopolitical investment at PwC, talking about this idea that we are almost in a, not a revenge of, of the pre-pandemic era, but almost that yes, we're moving forward with uh, lowering emissions and the resulting transition that needs to happen for the energy industry, but also there are very immediate concerns and needs in terms of supply. Absolutely. So we are addressing the energy transition at the same time as a result of pandemic recovery. We're seeing record high carbon emissions rates because that's the shape of the recovery. The demand is sky high. In the meantime, we've got this energy crunch that really seems like nobody saw coming when we were enjoying the blue skies, clear air of pandemic era shutdown, to be frank. I think the pandemic allowed us this moment of optimism that we would turn a fresh page. But the reality we sit in right now is much more complicated. So one of the, the main things that Alexis talked to us about, and we'll listen to that in a minute, was about volatility and that we could be kind of seeing more price shocks, if you like, um, as we've seen in terms of gas in parts of the world, but now oil, you know, uh, in the 90s with expectations of, of $100 per barrel coming. Totally. And the other uh, thread that I want to highlight to pay attention to during this conversation is the concept of the green transition not necessarily being a utopic solution to nationalism or any of the trade rows we've had over, you know, this rise of microchips and everything being technology driven, that the green transition does have its own inherent issues and and some flaws and that there's reason to be measured and balanced about approaching this. Well, let's listen to that discussion with Alexis Crow now. Alexis, thanks so much for for joining us. Um you know the the wider picture at the start of 2022 is heightened geopolitical tension um but you know if we're specifically talking about energy and the energy markets i mean what should we expect now going forward in general thanks so much for having me mustafa so certainly what i would say is you know we we continue to contend with an elevated commodity price environment that's certainly the case uh, across the commodity landscape with regard to fuels uh, and, and gasoline and petroleum, as well as metals and, and food prices. Certainly here, I would say that while geopolitical events continue to contribute to a little bit of this volatility, it's really on the supply and demand side um, that we've seen such shocks to price. And so if we go back to 2020, you know, and we consider the emergence from the base effects of 2020 to where we are now, we saw unprecedented movements in both supply and demand, uh, particularly in oil markets. Um, on the supply side, some estimates uh, are that global oil production fell by 6.6 million barrels per day in 2020, 
um, which would be the largest contraction in post-war history. And even on the demand side, you know, we face that unprecedented event in, in WTI markets in America of, of negative oil prices. Um, uh, oil demand fell by some 9.3% uh, in some estimates in 2020. And you know, connected to that is this when we consider of oil and gas and the use of which commodity uh, for which purpose, and we consider just the sudden cessation in mobility that happened in 2020. Uh, carbon emissions fell by the largest amount on record, um, and that cessation of mobility has been unique to this uh, particular recession. So come into 2021, and we continue to see supply and demand landscapes uh, considerably upended. Um, and there are other facets now related to this, in addition to the economic shocks related to the pandemic. You know, the second I would classify Mustafa would be um, you know, climate-related events, you know, where actually flooding and, and immense flooding actually washed out coal supply in China. Um, you know, we continue to see climate-related events upending uh, food prices as well. Um, and then the third component here would be this, this, this move toward the energy transition, where governments around the world with the tabula rasa coming out of the pandemic have committed to build back better. And what we're seeing is a resource grab. Um, in some cases, I would call it EV nationalism, uh, with governments looking to corner supply of the market and stockpile domestic supplies of critical rare earth material. And what a lot of this has done is, is confused uh, and jig the demand landscape as well, where I think there's been a little bit of rosy optimistic lenses as to the extent to which countries, companies, households can move away um, from carbon emitting uh, fossil fuels and into a cleaner, greener future. And that's also complicating the price landscape. Alexis, thank you for that broader context and kind of telling us what's what. You wrote recently for the Observer Research Foundation that the skyrocketing commodity price environment has led one observer to point out that we might be seeing the revenge of the old economy, which I think you just uh, really well described. But I want to ask you, where is this new economy? You talk about EV nationalism, which I want to ask you more about later, but where does the green transition come into play? And is it under threat in this current environment that we're now in? Oh, thank you so much, Kelsey. So here what I would say is, you know, this for the non-econ nerd listeners, I would say that the, you know, the old economy versus new economy, basically what we're talking about is moving from goods producing to services uh, producing economies and, and, and employment labor markets. And so that quotation about the revenge of the old economy is that we're trying to move into this brighter, cleaner future of services provision, according to which economies will be less dependent upon both producing oil and natural gas as well as consuming oil and natural gas, and that it's come back to bite us because, again, we've been too halcyon in our viewpoint. And here I would actually say, you know, this is where the, the word that we emphasize here is transition. And it's very much that it's a transition, according to which there is certainly still scope for the use of oil and natural gas um, in transport, in urban, and so supporting mobility, as well as in urbanization, supporting power generation. And what we continue to witness with the, I would say, quite robust uh, economic recovery that we've witnessed across geographies in 2021 
has been a reversion back to the mean of using that oil and natural gas. Um, and in some cases, coal, you know, we're seeing a, like gas to oil switching and we're seeing a, an increase in coal use from territories such as Germany, Japan and the United States as well. Um, so the revenge is that some observers would say we underinvested in that underestimation of the use of oil and natural gas. So remember all of that talk about dinosaur investments and stranded assets and um, big, big natural gas fields would be stranded assets. And so now we face this position where we recognize our dependence upon some of these fossil fuels. And I think certainly amidst the green transition, that there will be an elevated cost of capital. And so if we think about how this is unfolding across jurisdictions, you know, I think it's certainly divided between the importers and the exporters. And we're watching, you know, countries such as the UAE, for example, um, adjust fiscal balances and adjust government policy to be able to direct more growth toward, you know, non-oil and non-gas producing sectors. That's a topic of debate in the Colombia election as well at the moment. So you talk about, uh, you know, investment. You mentioned that there is sort of a, a quite a complex and, and, and maybe challenging environment for that. But there's there's been a lot of estimates about how much investment will be required for the energy transition. But also there's this competing narrative that we need to also maintain investment in fossil fuel uh, capacity because it's going to be bumpy as we try and get to these new energy sources. So how do you think that push and pull is going to is going to pan out? Well, it's interesting, Mustafa, because I would actually say, so who are we talking about in terms of investment? Is this companies in CapEx? Is this private investment and institutional investors? Or is this even governments? And, you know, here I would actually say that the pass-through of a heightened headline inflation into core inflation for many economies today, um, which is directly impacting households, has certainly forced some government hands to be able to say, okay, we, we actually have underinvested in, in our own domestic production and domestic stores of fossil fuels, and, and we need to step some of this investment up. So the United States obviously comes to mind here um, from a government landscape. I would say that um, thinking about the corporate landscape, obviously we've witnessed the extent to which in, in earnings season, the start of earnings season now, some of the majors have posted their highest profits uh, since 2014. And here I would actually say that what's going to be interesting to see is how some of those profits are distributed. Um, we noted that some of the majors didn't pass this on uh, into significant or meaningful wage increases in 2021. And so the extent to which you know, you're paying off a debt pile going back to 2020 from those base effects that we talked about, and the extent to which you're channeling this into investing in producing green energy. And here, a couple of the European majors come to mind of being significant players in the space and really dedicated and focused on that. And we've, we've actually published on this previously that some of these companies can be the brightest in spots for investing um, in the energy transition. On the private side, I, was, I would say as well, you know, one of the key developments that we note with regard to specifically climate investment is the extent to which you know, private capital is still needing a lot of the de-risking from a multilateral development bank such as the IFC um, to be able to enter in some of the larger infrastructure projects with regard to renewable energy. And I think that's going to be a critical component going forward to be able to 
bridge that gap, which is in some estimates $26 trillion across uh, developing Asia. So I think that's going to be critical to focus on. In this context of recovery, meaning reversion, I, I like that line, and record-breaking profits, where does that leave ESG commitments and ESG aspirations? Are these going to be durable in the year ahead, or are they under threat because we're returning to some bad habits? So first of all, I would classify, you know, probably single out the E component of that um, when we're talking about the energy landscape, which, of course, you know, in terms of taxonomy is is more easily codified um, when you look at the TCFD requirements and disclosures, particularly what some of the European banks are, are now doing with regard to climate stress testing. And so here's where I would say that as we start to make these commitments, particularly to net zero and investors are looking at potentially divesting carbon assets, you know, the cost of capital of producing oil and natural gas is going to go up and it's going to go up in different ways. One is just in value terms. You actually had Al-Naimi going back to his position in Saudi Arabia, talking about the cost of production in Saudi was actually increasing at a time when some were comparing it to a somewhat lower cost of production, obviously, than in the U.S. unconventional plays. So just in terms of actual E&P, the cost of production is going to go up. The social cost of capital is going to go up significantly, where shareholders are going to demand, you know, to what extent if you're extracting and producing, exporting resources, are you really focused on carbon capture, sequestration? Are you really focused on addressing some of the methane leakage, uh, which is something that we're witnessing in the Permian Basin, significant contributor? to greenhouse gas emissions? And so how efficient are you going to be in your production? And obviously then in terms of reporting, that if, for example, you are one of the seven sisters uh, and you say that nat gas is going to be X amount of your portfolio by 2035, you know, how are you going to actually approach the net zero target in tandem with that? And so, again, we're going to have to witness a lot of innovation, which in turn will spur Uh, I think, significant investment opportunities. The S and the G are two components that are not necessarily handled um, by this whole debate. You know, the S we're witnessing is if there is a disorderly energy transition, there is a social cost which is negative associated with the removal or the perceived rapid removal of our lifeline to oil as a use for transport and to nat gas for power generation. Some data shows that 350 million people in 2021 uh, suffered from power outages. Now, in a year where many schools were online, where many households have been online working, you know, that's significant disruption to productivity and and in turn to economic growth. So there is a social cost um, for the price takers and the price makers. You know, I certainly witnessed this in some of the exporting countries, you know, the fact that we didn't get to have and enjoy the, the national income from ENP that other exporting countries did amidst this energy transition. The G part, I will also call out because I think there is significant opportunity um, as we think about the new greener landscape in terms of job creation. And really here, I would call out some energy companies and exporting countries have been significant in putting women in positions of leadership uh, with regard to engineering. And I think um, there will be a lot of, of investors focused on investing in skills and training uh, for this new energy transition. You've written about this a bit, and it's something I've also thought about. A green future, if you think about it maybe overly simplistically, should untether us from relying on others for energy. 
wind waves, sun, all local. But why is that wrong? You spoke of EV nationalism earlier. So can you talk a little bit about where geopolitics come into play in a renewable grid? Sure. So, you know, it's it's certainly in terms of some of the raw materials, some of the goods, uh, the capital, the know-how and the expertise. And these are not tied to any one domestic jurisdiction. And we've watched that, witnessed that play out um, with regard to even the U.S. and moving to an energy transition and, and just the cost of capital of investing in this. So firstly, I would say in the in the resource side of things, you know, we're witnessing this with regard to European shortfalls in aluminium supply, for example. It's so much investor attraction going and attention going into lithium assets across the globe, really putting a spotlight on jurisdictions across Latin America, across sub-Saharan Africa. You know, increasingly we're seeing rhodium uh, come into demand because it's a key component in wiping uh, nitrous oxide from exhaust gases. So uh, a clear part of that greener, cleaner future. Um, so we're certainly witnessing this in terms of the raw material landscape. And so that would be one, I would say that also just in terms of the inputs required, such as solar panels, such as, again, aluminium and steel piping to be used, um, such as wind turbines. We're certainly seeing that that is a cross-border activity uh, that one country is not necessarily um, exhibiting the prowess to do that on their own. And then just the human capital, the know-how, as well as the financial capital, that that has to come across borders. So I think there has been this allure that if we move toward a more renewable future, as you say, these are local, these are domestic, um, that, that we will not be reliant on other powers. And I think that's certainly uh, evidencing itself to be uh, fiction. That was Alexis Crow. That's it for today. Kelsey Warner, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to our production team, Arthur Edison, Aisha Khan, and all of you for listening. Do join us again next time.